I'm Bert Cohen. We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. The dignity of humanity. It is so important for everybody. Israel's prime minister described a recent new law that has been passed as a, quote, defining moment in the annals of Zionism and the history of the state of Israel, end of quote. Well, many Jews around the world have expressed great concern and hope that the new law is not, in fact, not a defining moment. But the 20% of Israeli citizens who are Palestinian, or at least not Jewish, see the newly passed Israeli nation-state law as a legal enshrinement of de facto apartheid, despite the recent 70th anniversary of the Israeli Declaration of Independence, where it is written that the state of Israel, quote, will ensure complete equality of social and political rights to all its inhabitants, irrespective of religion, race, or gender. Well, today it appears Netanyahu's government is trying to ignore those words and the values they represent. The new law is harshly criticized by the moderate American group J Street, which calls itself pro-Israel, pro-peace organization of Jewish Americans. Their statement in reaction says, Around the world, it's become increasingly clear that liberal democracy is under attack from the forces of ultranationalism, authoritarianism, and bigotry. We see it here in the U.S., where the Trump administration is doing all it can to demonize minorities, immigrants, and the free press. And we see it in Israel, where recently the Netanyahu government passed major legislation designed to minimize the rights of minorities and undercut the country's status as a state for all its citizens. End of quote. And of course, pro-Palestinian and other non-Jewish people of Israel express outrage that the new law looks to be a legitimization of hate and incitement. With all the news being pretty much all Trump all the time, you may have missed this story. But it is truly historic, a move by the ultranationalist right-wing government of Benjamin Netanyahu. And it clearly angers people across the world, especially especially coming from a state which, in its 1948 founding document, states that Israel would foster the development of the country for the benefit of all its inhabitants and ensure complete equality of social and political rights. Would this have happened under governments not led by Netanyahu or his right-wing nationalist, clearly racist counterpart in America, Donald Trump? Is there any way it can be undone and apartheid ended? Does this new law not only destroy hopes for a two-state solution, but also greatly increase the likelihood of yet another Mideast war? 
Is it a legitimization of hate and violence? Does it, as critics fear, pave the way for ethnic cleansing? With us today on Keeping Democracy Live is journalist Allison Weir, the executive director and founder, I believe, of If Americans Knew. Thank you, Allison, for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, I love that title, If Americans Knew. In my naive optimism, I have to believe that if if Americans knew a lot of things, things would be different. But we are specifically kept in the dark about a lot of things. Well, the organization, If Americans Knew, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing Americans with information on topics of importance that are misreported or underreported in the American media. Without question, it is in the interest of certain political powers to make sure Americans do not know. If Americans Knew certainly has an uphill battle. I just got to say a little bit of Allison's background. In 2001, she left her position as editor of Marinscope newspaper in Sausalito, California, nice part of the world, to travel independently as a freelance reporter throughout Gaza and the West Bank. On her return, she founded If Americans Knew. She continues to research the issue intensively. Her library on the issue now includes over 100 books, and she recently returned from three months traveling through the West Bank Israel, and the Golan Heights. Well, again, thanks very much. L- let's start by asking the question, what does the new law do? What does it say? Well, it really enshrines the privilege of Jewish Israelis, um, what they already enjoy in what used to be called Palestine. So in some ways, a number of analysts have written about this. In, in some ways, what it does is actually make more obvious what has already been going on. But it does codify it in law in ways that was not done before. So it names it names Jerusalem as the quote United Capital. It states the priorities of the ingathering of exiles. That means supposedly all Jewish people around the world are exiles and they're supposed to be living in Israel. It prioritizes the creation of quote Jewish only communities and um Settling, which means confiscating still more Palestinian land against which violates international law. It uh, is the the Arabic language had been uh, uh, an official language along with Hebrew. Now it has downgraded that. So it has really enshrined and um, made more blatant a system systematized supremacism and discrimination. Amazing, really. Uh, I wonder how you say Jim Crow in Hebrew. Uh, how easily yeah. how easily did it pass? Being Jewish myself, I can tell you, if you get four Jews in a room, you get five different opinions, you know. And I, my understanding is it didn't pass all that easily. The Knesset, the Israeli parliament, had some real divisions in it. Tell us about that, please. That's right. It did have, um, there was a, a, you know, apparently hours, hours of stormy debate about it. Um, this was covered quite a bit, of course, in the Israeli media, that it was, you know, very controversial. Many people in the Knesset, the, the Israeli parliament, were speaking ag- against it very vehemently and have done ever since that time. So it didn't pass. Well, it passed. It was 62. The, the final vote was 62 in favor of it, 55 opposed, and two abstained. Um that's pretty so strong it, opposition. You know, yeah. so it—it's certainly not in. You know, certainly there was a, a large segment of the Knesset that opposed it. 
However, you know, which is sort of nice to see. Yeah. But it's a little discouraging to see that among the Israeli population, according to a poll that was taken recently, Uh-oh. the differential is is greater. Fifty-eight percent agree with the language, and only thirty-four percent opposed it. There's more substantial support for it among the Israeli population, even than in the Knesset itself. Ah, well, that is uh, disturbing. But people can be led around. I mean, how the heck we got? Uh, That's true. Donald Trump here is. Mm. I I have to believe not everybody is as racist as he is who supports him, but I don't know. The words Mm -hmm. Palestinian, equality, and democracy appear nowhere in that document. Arabic, the word Arabic only appears in the context of downgrading the language from official to special status. What is the significance of this move? In what ways is it seen as a legal demotion, and how important to identity is language, do you think, Allison? Well, I, I, you know, I think, of course, language is very, very intrinsic to your identity and to your culture and uh, to your history. Uh, it, it, it is interesting that it was an official language in Israel for so long, despite the fact that there was really enormous discrimination against non-Jews from the very beginning and the founding of Israel. You know, after all, Israel was created to be, quote, the Jewish state. That's what it was created to do. That's what it has called itself for decades. It was created through a founding war that an Israeli historian, Ilan Pape, has very accurately described, and many others have too, but Ilan Pape's, one of his excellent books is called The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. That's how Israel was created. Uh, That was the intention. When you read the early Zionist letters and conferences, uh, internal statements, they were all talking about creating a Jewish state. So this isn't this isn't new, but it makes it it makes it much more blatant. And I think it's in addition to making it much more blatant for the rest of the world, where there was this myth of Israel being the only democracy in the Middle East, whereas people that know the issue say, yes, for Jews, it's a democracy. Of course, not even for all all that population, but certainly not for non-Jews, Palestinian Christians and Muslims, the the Druze population. The Druze, yes. What's interesting about this is the the Druze population, which is still another religion, largely within Israel itself, has been uh, co-opted. So Druze, there are Druze in the military. Yes. They're supposedly part of the system. Now, not in the Golan Heights, where they're very uh, opposed to Israel, but within Israel itself, they've been co-opted. Now, with this state, this new state, the nation-state law, making it blatant that they too, they too, not just the Palestinian Christians and Muslims, they too are not officially welcome. Uh, in the the state of Israel, and that they are now officially discriminated against. So that that's been really one of the major changes. I think I can't help but be reminded that in the in the First World War, Jews were proud Germans. They fought along with Germans, and then after the First World War, uh, they were treated rather badly. Uh, and you know, Druze have fought for Israel. They have been in the army. 
and now their rights are taken away. I'm curious, you mentioned that not all Jewish people are able to participate in the alleged democracy. I, tell me more about that. I'm not familiar with that. Well, it's, um, that, that's more the type of thing, certainly, that you see in many countries, including our own, where certain populations are really second-class citizens. Well, so true. in many cases, the, the European Jews have always had a higher status and, and preferential treatment and, and more money allotted to that population than Jews from the, oh, right. the, the Middle East or North Africa, right. the Mizrahi Jews, as they're often referred to. Some Jews from Africa were brought in to Israel as supposedly long-lost Jews, and from Ethiopia and places, and then right. they were treated extremely badly. In some cases, uh, there, was a, there have been a number of controversies about this within Israel. There were some cases where they discovered that the blood, blood donated by African Jews was being thrown out. Oh, my God. It was, you know, not being used. So that was a, a major controversy. They, you know, many <laughs> people spoke out against it. So yeah. a lot of people that have spent time in Israel and a lot of time in Israel really consider the Palestinians third-class citizens. Uh-huh. And the poor Jewish citizens, the, poor, the, the, the ethnically Arab Jewish citizens, as often being second-class citizens. Well, they happen to be of darker skin, too, for the most part. Let's face yes, it, the, the, Euro- right. the European, the Ashkenazic are pretty much white, whereas the Sephardic and, as you say, African and Arab tend to be darker skin. Mm-hmm. Oh, isn't that special? The Balfour Declaration mm-hmm. of 1917 was a public statement issued by the British government during World War One. What do the Brits have to do with all this? Well, they announced support for the establishment of a, quote, national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. In Palestine. A home for the Jewish people in Palestine. Then, which was then an Ottoman region with a minority Jewish population, Palestine was among the spoils of the First World War, making it under the control of the British. Here's the entire declaration. It's pretty short. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. End of quote. That's it. So this new law flies directly in the face of that declaration, does it not? I mean, does this new law merely make official in law that which had long been actual practice? Does it move discrimination from merely de facto to de jure now? It it does all of the above, um, although in some ways it already was de jure. But it's just to go back a little bit to the Balfour Declaration, it's interesting to look at that because it it is, as you say, it, it, it talks about, you know, not injuring the the rights of non-Jews, etc. What it what it didn't point out is that the 90 percent of the population at that time was not Jewish. Ninety percent. So they're talking. You know, to read the Balfour, you'd think you're talking about some tiny minority within yeah. Palestine, but we're we're talking about you know the huge majority. Secondly, a lot of people have pointed out this talk to, talks about certain rights, but it leaves out political rights. Um, the Balfour Declaration was not crafted hastily. 
it was it was written over a period of years. It had a great deal of input, and again, most people don't know this, but I have this in my book, from American Zionists helped write that document. Mm-hmm. The, the text for what became known as the Balfour De- Declaration went back and forth between Britain and the U.S., between Zionists and the okay. U.S. Wow. People like Brandeis were involved. Ah. And um, the person who actually wrote the Balfour Declaration was not Lord Balfour, who was the British foreign minister, it was a man named Leopold Amory, who was a secret but very fervent Zionist. So it was, um, even though when you when you read it, it sounds fairly mild. You think, well, what does it have to do with? What kind of significance would it have anyway? Because Britain didn't yet control Palestine; that was under the Ottoman Empire. Right. But it had what it did is it by Britain passing this, as you say, fairly mild endorsement of the Jewish home, and they actually meant Jewish state. That was written about quite a bit at the time and Mm. since. So they were talking about a Jewish state, even though that was disguised and made it sound like maybe this would be a little cultural home for Jews in Palestine, which would be, you know, certainly fine and appropriate. Um, They were talking about a Jewish state. They were talking about not, you know, didn't even say anything about not intruding on the political rights of, of non-Jews there. But also, the Balfour Declaration actually helped, was was a document that was created specifically to, to as a gentleman's agreement to get the U.S. to join World War I. That, that's oh, written about yes. in a number of books. So, uh-huh. so there's a lot to Balfour that, oh, yes, that's are. usually not very widely known. Well, of course, as most history, the most important stuff is specifically not widely known, which is, I, I yeah. love the title of your organization, If Americans Knew. Erasing history is just, it's essential to the powers that be. If you just tuned in, yeah. Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today is journalist Allison Weir. Founder and executive director of If Americans Knew, we're talking about the Jewish nation-state law that just recently passed. Now, this does this now enshrined in law declaration of Jewish supremacy not have the effect of serving the interests of one group at the expense of the most basic rights of another? How can one not be reminded of the Jim Crow laws of the South? Is it kind of similar to that all of a sudden? I mean, you know, it's been practiced for a while, but there were actual Jim Crow laws. Well, it's, um, it is, it is, you know, like, like um, Jim Crow laws in the South, which I remember witnessing firsthand. It's um, really? wow. very much many people, including Desmond Tutu, for example, uh-huh. the anti-apartheid bishop from South Africa, mm-hmm. have be- long before this law was passed were already... Uh, saying very publicly that Israel was very was was practicing a form of apartheid. That uh, in some some of these statements by Desmond Tutu and other very respected human rights workers have said that people from South Africa who should know right. have said that the apartheid that they witnessed being practiced by Israel was worse yeah. than what they had suffered in South Africa. And this is before this law was passed. Oh. Oh, um, there was a, a study done by the Human Sciences Research Center of South Africa in about 1910. 
I mean, sorry, in 2010. Ah, We're talking eight years, approximately eight years ago. And already in that study by this research center of South Africa, they said, quote, Israel's domestic law codifies the Jewish identity as the preferred identity and establishes Mm. that collective rights extend to Jews only, unquote. They have, you know, additional very strong statements. They say, quote, Israel's state resources are specified as being for the exclusive use of Jews administered under the World Zionist Organization, Jewish Agency, and Jewish National Fund, unquote. That's about 93% of, of the land of Israel. So again, this has... The law is significant, right? But in some ways, in some ways, and it, it has worsened the situation for Palestinians. There's no doubt about it, but not all that much. What it has mostly done is made all of this more blatant and more obvious. And I think that's what concerns J Street, yes. and the many Israel partisans have spoken out against it. You know, it may be also matters of principle. One hopes. But I suspect it may be also interest of strategy because J Street does support Israel. Right. And it sees, you know, this move by the Netanyahu administration as very damaging to the state of Israel. And, and I think they're entirely right. Interesting point about, you know, people who are Zionist, uh, who, you know, are dedicated to the preservation and survival of Israel uh, in the Middle East. Uh, it's it's kind of a, a black eye and self-imposed on mm-hmm. that. And I, I should say that I know throughout the world there's a lot of very unfortunate, in my opinion, confusion between Zionism and Judaism. I am Jewish. It's about ethics. It's about doing the right thing. It's about justice. What's going on in this highly nationalistic, militaristic state is not consistent, in my opinion, with uh, my Jewishness and what I believe about uh, the roots of of you know our our faith, but that's what it is. It's a uh, a religious state, I guess, and you know we've seen that in Iran. I can't think of too many other places where there's a religious state. It ain't pretty, that's for sure. What about the long-standing relationship between the state of Israel and the United States? For decades, the American president has at least mouthed the words of justice, and occasionally Palestinian rights, particularly Ronald Reagan, oddly enough. Obama actually dared to criticize the Netanyahu administration, though not as nearly as much as he could have, in my opinion. It does seem that everything our orange one now does is only about reversing anything Obama did. He's obsessed mm-hmm. with that. Bizarre. How much complicity in the new apartheid law do you think came from the Trump White House. How necessary was his at least tacit support for this? Seems like they don't do anything without U.S. Yeah. support. <laughs> well, they they do. They actually have often defied even U.S. presidents, as you say. From you know, the last one they did not defy was Eisenhower. Oh, wow. Since then, they pretty much every president from both parties at some point Israel goes too far, and they you know they speak against it. George Bush. Um, George W. Bush told them to stop one of the massacres, and they continued to do it. Reagan told them to stop it in Lebanon, they continued to do it. George Bush Sr. tried to stop the loan guarantees and uh, lost the second term of office, probably because of that. So, huh. 
So in that sense, they do defy presidents when they want to. But I I agree with you, your suggestion that the, the Trump White House was a significant reason that this passed at this time. I think the Trump White House has now been captured. It wasn't originally, interestingly enough, wasn't originally as, as strongly in favor of right-wing Israel as people believe. Hmm. Because when you read the Israeli media every day, as I do, at the beginning, there was a great deal of concern about Trump. He had made statements uh, that they didn't like about Israel. He had made statements against the Iraq War, which the government of Israel had wanted the U.S. to take part in. Um, some of his high officials, Tillerman, for example, oh, yeah. uh, even some of the others, Israel, the government of Israel was not happy with. So it, it wasn't immediately clear that Trump would be as bad on that particular issue, as it has turned out he is. But that has happened over a period of time. It's basically been a fight within the administration, and the hardcore pro-Israel fanatics have definitely won. They've they've mostly pushed out the others. They've brought in people that are even among the worst, like John Bolton. And always from the beginning, there was Friedman and Jared Kushner. So the fact that it's now been captured by this hardcore right-wing pro-Israel group did make it the ideal time for a hardcore Uh, right-wing government in Israel to push through a hardcore right-wing racist law. That's that's what happened. uh, Interesting. Well, of course, there's the official declaration of Jerusalem as uh, the capital and relocating the American embassy there, which has been talked about for many years, but has never Mm -hmm. actually been done. What about members of Congress? And one of the I think possibly the most powerful lobby in the halls of of Congress is APAC, the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, in which Israel can do no wrong, really right-wing stuff, I think way out of touch actually to the right of most people in Israel. But how much have have members of Congress, since this law came into uh, existence, have there been any members of Congress who have spoken against it, or does APAC have just that much clout that they don't dare speak up? APAC has so much clout, and, and it's, it's not just APAC. You know, unfortunately, APAC is the most visible and probably, you know, has something like an annual budget of $60 million. So it's the one part of the lobby that, that's often very visible to people and, under, and seen, although the average American still probably is not very aware sure. of APAC compared to other lobbies. Yeah. But... Um, the Israel lobby is, is much more than APAC. Uh-huh. And given that reality, politicians just avoid doing anything right. where, as much as they can that would displease the Israel lobby. So most just vote and go along with what APAC wants. There's been a little bit of a split with Obama. Um, for the first time, there was a bit of a split with Netanyahu coming in and, and disrespecting our you yes. know, Democratic African-American president and going behind his back to the other party, mm-hmm. which many people, again, a lot of Israel partisans feel was very unwise because now for the first time they've created a condition where many Democrats visibly can be unhappy with Israel because of the treatment of their of our of the United States president doing that so openly and uh-huh. so openly connecting to the Republican Party. 
But even with that change that occurred a few years ago, you still have, you know, right now, again, as you were saying, there's so much that Americans don't know. Right. right now, working its way through Congress is a package of $38 billion to go to Israel over the next 10 years. This is Ooh. the largest such aid package in U.S. history. Oh, wow. It's been passed by the Senate. A portion of it was just signed into law by President Trump. It's before the House uh, now. And yet, the U.S. media have not had a single report, and I've been tracking this. I so I think, it, yeah. I think you know, usually you're, you're you usually say virtually or almost. A, I don't think there's been a single report in the U.S. media telling Americans about our tax money. That there are significant bills in Congress right now that are sending a massive amount of money to Israel, and Americans don't even know about that. And the bills, these, you know, so far they're passing with almost no opposition at all because of the power of the Israel lobby. Once again, if Americans knew and were being kept in the dark, no question about that. $38 billion, that is a chunk of change. I'm, I'm amazed at that. And I, I can't help but think that, you know, supporter pro-Israel groups like J Street must be a little bit nervous about, wow, maybe this new, you know, really open discrimination law might hurt the chances of that $38 billion getting there. But so far, nobody's... I think, Go ahead. I think you're right. I think that the um, the J Street and some of the others who, yeah. you know, have spoken out very, very powerfully against this law, as I say, I think it's partly because they know it, yeah. it could be suicidal, potentially. It ain't good strategy. Certainly, you know, most Americans, I believe, really most Americans across the political spectrum do oppose racism. You know, sometimes they define it differently or (laughs) find different ways to to solve it. But, you know, most people, the large majority of Americans don't believe in racism, don't think it's right, don't like discrimination. And here you have a law that discriminates in ways that, you know, the majority of our nation still um, are identify as Christian Americans. So mm-hmm. here they have a law, a state that they're going to be giving uh, $38 billion to discriminates against their religion and their ethnicity, so <laughs> in a very open, blatant way. And by the way, that $38 billion works out to about $23,000 per Jewish-Israeli family of four. You know, this is... It, Again, if Americans knew, right. there would at least be debate about that. As you know, I feel, and I'm sure you feel, that a healthy democracy, a healthy republic, a healthy country has open discussion, and people will have different opinions. And you present your evidence and your facts and your opinion, and others present theirs. Yeah. And you know, some sort of hopefully rational yes. policy <laughs> is hammered out. Yes. That's... The problem with the the policies regarding Israel is that almost never happens. That almost never happens. Yeah, people don't dare speak out. We have very bad policies that I feel are, are extremely bad for Americans. Yes. And I feel very harmful to the entire Middle East. And people just don't know. Now, right. you talk about democracy. Israel has always boasted that it is the only democracy in the Middle East. And many Jewish Americans have defended it because of this status. Is this law as really as bad as Palestinians are making out to be? I mean, after all... Israel is a state 
guided by principle, allegedly. It's basic law of human dignity and liberty. There is something called the basic law of human dignity and liberty mm-hmm. guarantees civil rights and individual freedom, individual freedoms for all its people. So is well, it, it's go ahead. It, it's interesting because the um, from from its founding, as I mentioned before, the purpose of creating Israel was to be right. a Jewish state. Yes, it was. Um, it's become very clear as. You know, a number of historians had already documented this, but when the Israeli archives were open, many Israeli historians also showed that there was a plan to expel as many non-Jews as possible in their war, and they expelled, you know, close to a million people, probably at least mm-hmm. seven hundred and fifty thousand right, people Nakba. were expelled. So, in the, what's what a lot of analysts have written about is that. Israel is a modern state. It was created, you know, when I was born, there was no Israel yet, so I consider that fairly recent. And uh, so we have a modern nation-state that does not have a constitution. It does not have a constitution because many people have written that would have to have made blatant, as this new law has just done, that it would be based on discrimination. So it has you know, it had the Declaration of Independence, it has the, quote, basic laws, but those basic laws can be changed fairly easily. You don't have to go through an amendment process like we do with the U.S. Constitution. So, Hmm. now, when you look at some of their statements, again, there will be very high, lofty statements of principle. Yes. But, But then when you read them more carefully and you look at the practice from the very beginning of the state, but you see something very different. So it's in the law that you're mentioning, or you know, the basic law. This is not constitutional. The basic law of human dignity and liberty says human dignity and liberty are considered quote values of the state of Israel as a Jewish ah. and democratic state uh-huh. unquote. Uh-huh. So even there, in the part mm-hmm. where it's making it appear that it will be, you know, there'll be equal rights for all, even there, they they made sure to insert. The Jewish state of Israel, right? And then, you know, it, as you know, the flag has a, a, a Jewish I symbol know, on it. All the tanks, of course, fly flags with the big star of David on them. Mm-hmm. You know, all of the all of the symbols. Some of the the state symbol is a menorah. So, if you look at the Jewish symbols from the beginning, uh, you know, up until be, you know before this was passed, they were already there. And it is, it's hugely unfortunate because, as you say, Judaism and Zionism are two different things. Absolutely. Judaism is a religion. Zionism is a political ideology. Nationalism. At the beginning, when Zionism, political Zionism began in the late 1800s, and um, most Jewish Americans were not Zionists. Absolutely. And there were many and some specific organizations that were actively opposing Zionism and were saying, you know, this, this new law is now enshrining Israel as the, the home of, of Jews worldwide. Well, Jewish Americans and Jewish people from other countries were all saying, wait, you know, America's our home. Yes. This is our home. This is my home. You know, exactly. you're not going to somehow, <laughs> we don't believe that we, quote, have a, a home and have to move to the Middle East. I was amazed when Be- when Benjamin Netanyahu was in uh, in, in France he was urging all the uh, uh, French people, French, Jewish French people, yeah. to move to Israel. What? 
No. That's right. Uh, it's, it's sort of like when de Gaulle had gone to Canada many years ago and was telling all the French Canadians they had to move to France. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, I missed that one. Yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting. <laughs> History is yeah. just so fascinating. And uh, again, we're talking with journalist Allison Weir, the founder and executive director of If Americans Knew. We're talking about the new uh, Jewish, uh, Israeli, uh, Jewish state law that uh, codifies what has been long in practice. And there's another law, aside from the basic law of human dignity and liberty, called the freedom of occupation, which, oddly enough, does not refer to the illegal occupation of Palestinian lands, but it guarantees every citizen, every citizen, the right to, quote, engage in any occupation, profession, or trade. Uh, how well has that worked out? Well, it, it, it is, you know, it, it is in, in sort of a black humor kind of way funny to have the word occupation right, in there right. and have it not, not refer to Israel's occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, you know, a, a major aspect of this whole but people can't get to their jobs, talk right? About jobs. Yeah. Well, the, and, and the thing is that, uh, again, a number of books and documents have been written about Israel's discrimination by Jewish Israelis who have been sure. exposing this type of thing for many years and, and who have opposed it for, for many years. So, for example, but Israel has done, its leaders are, I, I, I feel, smarter than the leaders of South Africa because they've made their yeah. discrimination and apartheid-like system more hidden until this law comes passed. Huh. They um, so, you know, at, as I said, a, a large percentage of the land of Israel, probably ninety-three percent, is really off limits for Palestinians to live on. But they, you know, at first it was owned by the quote Jewish National Fund, quasi-Israeli um, entity, yes. really a worldwide entity. Then it was passed over to the Israel Lands Commission. So that didn't make it so. You have to trace through these sort of uh -huh. somewhat complicated laws to discover what it actually means. And also, as part of those, you know, labyrinthine laws, yeah. it means that there, there were in place for, for a long time the fact that non-Jews weren't supposed to be allowed to work in a number of these places. There was only yeah. Jewish labor that was supposed to be al allowed to work there. So there's been discrimination against non-Jewish workers for many years. From the beginning of Zionism, you know, again, to see it from the, the Zionist perspective, when they were forming these types of things back in the 20s and 30s and 40s, and, you know, they the idea that Theodore Herzl and other had, others had was, well, there's discrimination against Jews, right. therefore we have to have a Jewish state, even though, as I said, most, most Jews around the world disagreed with that and did not move there. Right. And you know, disagreed with that basic assumption, but that was their their belief, and their belief. Theodore Herzl, when you read his writings, was really had some some views that many of us that do sound anti-Semitic. He thought that Jews at, in the quote diaspora were living were abnormal, yeah. and they needed to become normal by moving to Israel, and that so part of that was that they wanted Jews to do manual work and 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 agricultural work, which was not very widely done at that time. So, you know, so that that meant that these Israeli Jewish colonies at that time, they were called, uh -huh. that were being set up, set up in Palestine, right. 
would prohibit non-Jewish labor from from uh, working there because uh, they wanted, you know, I don't they I they, I don't think they saw it as being as discriminating against them, but it was sort of an affirmative action to get Jews to be uh, farmers and uh, work the land. Well, of course, I've seen what it meant. Of course, was you know was profound discrimination against the indigenous population. Gee, what does that remind me of? Uh, there have been uh, mm-hmm. I've I've seen pictures of. Uh, uh, Palestinians trying to get to work, and they have to go through these checkpoints. And I, sometimes the checkpoints are closed off. That kind of gets in the way of freedom of occupation, having a job. Uh, and that's right. I just uh, and uh, speaking of occupation, uh, back to the way we generally understand it. How does this new law affect all the illegal settlements? Uh, that that uh, the Zionists have been setting up. For those who may not know, please tell us what is illegal about them and how this might affect that. I mean, it, it, Americans have been very much against the you know imposition of, of Jewish settlements in uh, Palestinian areas. So how does this new law affect that? It's interesting because even Israel itself have there's certain settlements in that, that even Israel itself calls illegal. Again, for if there are any listeners that haven't followed this the way I would have been 20 years ago, settlements are, what a settlement means is that the Palestinian territories, that they're now officially called the Palestinian Occupied Territories, about, about 22% of what was originally Palestine are now, now called the Occupied Palestinian Territories. Those are the West Bank and Gaza. Mm-hmm. And in the West Bank, Israel has confiscated land and creates Jewish-only colonies on that land. Uh, many people call them Israeli-only, but if you're an Arab Israeli, as they call them, you, you can't live on that land. So they're Jewish-only colonies on confiscated Palestinian land. This violates a number of international laws, starting from the Hague Conventions, the Geneva Conventions, um, some UN Security Council resolutions, all prohibit that that behavior. You know, pro- prohibits annexing land by conquest. It prohibits um, discriminating against the people on the land. It prohibits um, a change in the demographic nature, moving your population onto that land. So it, it, it's violating many international laws. Every single Israeli settlement is violating many international laws. And some of the ones that are there, there are quite a few, have been in violation of even Israeli laws that had not approved these settlements. These more extremist, uh, often religious fanatics have gone oh, and right. kicked Palestinians off at the point of a rifle and, and weaponry and then create, you know, take more land and call that a settlement in Israel. Mm. does not recognize it. It's supposedly an illegal settlement often eventually it legalizes them. Yes. And this law would clearly legalize all of them and encourage even more of that. Amazing. I, I'm somewhat of a World War I fanatic, I will confess. And I'm looking at, there's various items within the new law, which it's just not really that long. Item C says, quote, the right to exercise national determination in the state of Israel is unique to the Jewish people, end of quote. So even though... The people who have lived there for generations longer than the vast majority of Jewish Israeli citizens, the right to self-determination explicitly does not apply. And 
again, I'm reminded of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points uh, at the armistice of the First World War. The right of self-determination was really important to him, but it only applied to the victors. And that made, some, right. that made some people rather angry and uh, created a lot of problems down the road. And I can't help but see some parallels to that. I mean, you know, when, when people are denied their right, I mean, when the right of self-determination only applies to the military victors, mm, that's a problem. It's not going to last all that long, which must concern J Street. And part six, section A of the new law says the state will strive to ensure the safety of the members of the Jewish people in trouble or in captivity due to the fact of their Jewishness or citizenship. This strikes me as particularly dangerous. Couldn't this enable more unchecked violence against Palestinians? That's a fascinating and troubling uh, statement there. Definitely. And many people are concerned that that will open up increased violence against Palestinians who are already, I mean, as I'm sure you know, Many, not all at all. You know, some, there are a substantial portion of Israeli settlers. It's just an economic decision for them. They get subsidized homes uh-huh. through our tax money. So they, uh-huh. you know, it's a way to, if you are struggling or, you know, want to better your life and have a nice home that's subsidized and free college for your children, there are a lot of perks. You can go and live in an Israeli settlement. But a certain a certain percentage a significant percentage of, of the settlement occupants are extremely fanatic uh, Jewish extremists. You know, their their version of Judaism, which I think most Jewish Americans would not agree mm. with. So they're, they're quite fanatic and very, very, very violent against the Palestinians that, that, whose homes, whose land they've stolen. So periodically they will go on a rampage and they'll, they'll beat people up or shoot them or kill them or, you know, in one case, torture somebody. Mm. So it's already bad. But this gives much more endorsement, uh, I think, and encouragement and incitement for that kind of behavior, this new law. So it's a, in in that case, it's certainly very harmful and, and uh, dangerous to have that law out there. I'm just going to say that again because it's so incredibly disturbing. The law says the state will strive to ensure the safety of the members of the Jewish people in trouble or in captivity due to the fact of their Jewishness or citizenship. That uh, other people, you're on your own, people. You know, if bad guys come for you, hey, uh, you're not Jewish, so that's your problem. Part seven. Also, um, go ahead. There's one aspect I'm not sure, just to bring up briefly, is that they also are. The 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 law is written in such a way. It says that um, it actually encourages active pr- intrusion into the domestic processes of foreign countries. In in quote protecting the diaspora, oh, wow. the state shall what? act to preserve the cultural, historical, and religious heritage of the Jewish people among Jews in the diaspora. Whoa! You know the state shall act within the diaspora to strengthen the affinity between the state and all members of the Jewish people. You know, this means that Israel is now publicly and legally saying that they will go to the U.S. and they will work within the U.S. to try to convince all Jewish Americans that they have some sort of affinity to this state in the Middle East. 
that they will work, you know, within the United States, with all, within all countries. Israel will officially and legally act within other nations to promote certain behavior. That's entirely inappropriate and, and pretty astonishing to see that. And I, I don't think many people have yet... There's so much about this law that's wrong that I'm not sure many people have sort of focused on that those few clauses at, at this point. Well, I certainly missed that. That's amazing to me. And we've heard about uh, the uh, Israeli uh, spy group, Mossad, going into other countries and doing things mm-hmm. of, shall we say, questionable legality, uh, this could encourage that. So they can have their own little uh, uh, force. They can go into any country and do anything to, quote, protect Jews. Uh, <sighs> unbelievable. That's right. <laughs> and, you know, as I said, wow. many, you know, most Jewish Americans, like others, are, are, you know, you're busy, you're doing lots of things. So I, my impression is that many during the year, uh, early years of, of political Zionism in the U.S., weren't paying that much attention. They weren't joining it. I think they scoffed at it, but they weren't actively opposing it. There were other things to do. Right. But those who were paying attention to it, you know, some were just outraged. And one man, Alfred Lilienthal, who wrote several very excellent books and articles, one of his articles, I think it was in the Reader's Digest, was Israel's flag is not mine. Right. You know, Israel was trying to tell all all Jewish Americans and tell all Americans that Jews were somehow a nation within the U.S., a separate nation, uh-huh. and that their real home was Israel, uh. which, you know, that's what Israel was trying to push through. And, uh, you know, the people that noticed that, like Alfred Lilienthal and um, a number of others, were actively saying, no, 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 we don't agree with that, that's wrong, we oppose it. But again, they didn't have the kind of financial resources that the Zionists had in the United States and elsewhere to oppose them. Wow. That, there's so much to it. I, I, yeah. there, there, there's Part 7 which in, in the new law which states, the state views the development of Jewish settlement as a national value, as we've said, and will, enc- will, and will act to encourage and promote its establishment and consolidation. Does this legalize destruction of Palestinian homes? Yes, because I, I think it, it, it does, con- destruction of Palestinian homes and confiscation of farmland. You, you, you know, when you go to the, the West Bank, and it was this way before in, in Gaza, but now they at least removed the illegal settlements from Gaza, but, you know, there are farmers who have been there for generation um, upon generation orchards, whose yes. farmland has been taken from them, who now have no, li- no livelihood left. So this will increase. And the thing that's interesting about this law is that other laws had been introduced to the Knesset. One of them proposed, quote, the state of all its citizens, which uh-huh. would be the principle uh-huh. of equality for every citizen. What a concept. One, um wasn't even sent to the legislature to discuss. Another one was called the Democratic, Multicultural, and, and Egalitarian State Law. That one also never saw the light of day. So there were some laws proposing what I believe Americans believe in, what we think our country is based on, mm-hmm. even though the practice, of course, often fails, yeah. falls far short. But, yeah. you know, the basic principles that we believe in, one person, one vote, was being proposed in Israel. And instead, it passed this blatantly discriminatory law. Wow. And, but again, there were many that opposed it, just not yes. nearly enough. 
and I, I should mention that there are, uh, you know, that, that uh, Zionism, when it first uh, came onto the scene in the 1880s, and ever since then, a lot of uh, uh, Jews have been really against Zionism. And one of the, I find it fascinating, the ultra-Orthodox group, whose name I forget, I am not a member. Uh, not, I think Naturai Kartai. Yes, thank you, Naturai Kartai. They're really opposed, very, they're, you know, ultra-conservative uh, Orthodox mm-hmm. Jews very strongly opposed to the state of Israel calling it Israel when, you know, I am one personally as a Jew, the member of the people of Israel, but I am American. You know, the people of Israel is not the state of Israel. Two very different things. What about world, I want to talk about what can be done now. Where's world opinion on this new legislation at the United Nations, the EU, the people of Europe? They must be a little bit not so pleased about it. Well, they're, they're, not speaking out against it as much as they should. Uh, the head of the EU made a very mild statement, a very, you know, we very, very weak statement that was surprisingly bad on this issue. So there hasn't, I, I, I don't think there's been as much public statement against it internationally as you would expect. Hmm. However, it's very important to remember, you know, around the world, there's a great, great deal of support for, for Palestine. Yes. In just last month, a UN block of 135 countries—these were, you know, the developing countries at the United Nations—80% of the world's population chose Palestine as the leader of its of its block. Oh, right. 80% of the world's population, 135 countries in the UN, chose Palestine as the head of of their particular, or you know, block of. of Countries, sure. mm-hmm. so yeah, there's this, been a, a lot of the majority of the world. Definitely, clearly, the numbers are very clear. Are supportive of Palestinian rights. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really pretty clear. Every everyone should be. That's what I say. With if Americans knew, I think right. everybody. When you know the facts, you know I like to believe that people believe in human rights, believe in justice, mm-hmm. and uh, believe in the rule of law. And for all of those reasons, one would support the Palestinians. And and in Israel, there are those that long have tried to change Israel into an egalitarian country, into a country for all of its citizens. It's just that that group has been very small, and the mass of U.S. money that goes to Israel uh, prevents them from having any power, because here you have the militarists saying, saying to the Israeli public, listen, we can... We can take as much additional land as we want, and mm. we'll still keep getting mu- massive money and support from the world's most powerful nations. And, and that undermines yes. the ability of dissidents in Israel to bring change. Well, I, I happen to think, and I'm often wrong, but I think that a uh, secular state with equality for all is inevitable in that area. It, uh, how much blood is going to be shed in between time? Yeah, it's going to, and I can't help but think that this new law codifying discrimination uh, is is only going to uh, weaken support for the, you know, the militarist Zionist races and uh, in, encourage support for Palestinians. Well, we have an election coming up here pretty soon, and this is, we are not in Israel, we are in the uh, United States. Mm-hmm. How significant is the November 6th election. I mean, it's in terms of guns and so many different things. But in terms of of policy 
toward this behavior in, in the state of Israel. How, how important is the American congressional election regarding this situation? I think it's extremely important. You know, I don't think we're going to change things overnight. But I, I think it is extremely important for people to contact the candidates and their elected representatives and say that they oppose these policies, to say, you know, that here Israel has enacted a discriminatory racist law. Yes. We don't want you to vote for aid to Israel. You know, people need to do that. And we all have to prioritize. You know, there's rarely mm-hmm. a candidate probably that takes every single stand on every single issue that you want. Right. So you have certain litmus tests. And the trouble is Palestine has, has almost never been one of them. Mm. You know, very few people. And because of that, this has gone on decade after decade after decade, engendered wars, uh, destabilized the Middle, Middle East, in some ways endangered the world because it's such a potential trigger of, of really an, a major war. It's caused so much damage, not only not only tragedy within Israel-Palestine but and in the region, but worldwide, oh, it's absolutely. very significant. And I feel that's because Americans have let it slide. You know, we just still vote for somebody, yeah. even if they are bad on this issue. And at this point, we do have to I think we need to prioritize this issue yes, and we... make, make candidates aware that that's what we're doing. Very important. And I must say, I'm remembering being at the Democratic National Convention a couple of years ago, somebody on the floor had a Palestinian flag. I thought that was great. That was wonderful to see. Uh, if people... Bernie Sanders supporters, I think, are there. You know, Bernie oh, yeah. Sanders was a very exciting possibility. Oh, indeed. <laughs> We've just begun. So if people want to keep in touch with your organization, If Americans Knew, I love the title. Is there a way they can do that on that Internet thing? Yes, we have a website. Our email address is there. It's ifamericansnew.org. We have a Facebook page, the same name that we hope people will join. We post things, items there every day. We have a blog. Our email address is contact at ifamericansnew.org. And on the website is our phone number. So there are many ways to get in touch with us, and we would love to have people do that. Thank you so much. I'd love to have people buy my book. (laughs) It's called Against Our Better Judgment. Uh It's on Amazon, and it's under $10. Wow, nice. And it's uh, an Amazon bestseller, so I hope people What's it called again? What's the name? Look into that. It's called Against Our Better Judgment, Uh and I'm the author, Allison Weir. So if they Google, I think you can find that. Or it's on a—certainly if you go to our website, you'll see it promoted there. Thank you so much. Very, very interesting discussion here, and hopefully uh, we can still do something about it. Thank you again. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on your program. First thing, the occupation started. When Palestine was left brokenhearted. Hands down, you won't believe the way they laid their wrath on her. Six feet under is where they left us. So bad, the way that they were killing us. Too bad, we're not afraid to die when bombs fall from the sky. Can't explain. I never thought that we were gonna lose so bad. They're all insane. There's got to be 